How often do you judge others? Seldom? Frequently? Daily? Never? How well do you know those whom you judge? Public figures? Friends? Family? What criteria do you use in your judgments? Personal experience? Factual information? Opinion? We make direct personal judgments every day even of people we do not know. The social media formats today relish criticisms of people's actions and statements, and always those of well-known people. Common, everyday people display their behaviors for anyone to see and read. These media encourage the judgments of others and popularize them. Most often we make judgments based upon our opinions, not facts. Least often do we judge others based upon biblical foundations. Sometimes, and increasingly so in our day, those whom we judge respond, Jesus said not to judge. Leaders in the Christian community who bear the wrath of believers and unbelievers resort to it. In so doing, perhaps they hope to defend or legitimize their actions and statements to deflect valid conclusions, or maybe even to silence critique. Did Jesus command his followers not to judge others? If so, where does the Bible state his command? Yes, Jesus did give directions to his followers regarding their judgments of others. Matthew 7, 1-5 reports a prominent description of his commands although Luke also describes them along with some other commands in his gospel, found in Luke chapter 6, verses 32 to 42. The passage in Matthew 7, 1 to 5, starts the last chapter in Christ's famous Sermon on the Mount, which begins in Matthew chapter 5. He gathered his followers and the massive crowds that trailed him, to a mountain near Capernaum, at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and he taught them there. According to Smith's Dictionary Timeline, Jesus gave this sermon near the end of his first year of earthly ministry. Prior to it, Jesus performed several miracles, faced and overcame temptation from Satan, introduced the presence of the kingdom, called several disciples, and identified himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah. This sermon pronounced Christ's first major declaration of his kingdom and the characteristics of those who belong to it. In it, Christ defined specific aspects of thought and actions that would differentiate his followers from all others. He even redefined some specific aspects of God's law, commonly known as the Law of Moses. The text in Matthew 7, 1-5 describes Christ's teaching on judging others. What did Jesus say about judging others? He began his directions on judging others with the statement, Judge not, lest you be judged. What did Jesus mean with the word judge? 
according to the Amplified Bible, to judge meant to criticize or condemn. The reputable Strong's Concordance agrees with this definition. Other Bible scholars define it more thoroughly. Laonida define it to judge one guilty and liable for punishment. Thayer defines it as to separate and to put asunder. Liddell, Scott, and Jones define it to accuse or to bring to trial. Christ's teaching on judging others included a broad range of accusations, from criticism to charging one liable to trial and punishment. At first glance, it appears that Christ totally denounced and forbade criticism of others. He did not. This first part of these verses serves as the first of several warnings in the text on the serious nature of judging. In fact, the first four verses of the text contain warnings to those who criticize or condemn others. Jesus did not forbid it, but gave practical directions for it. No, Jesus did not command his followers not to judge others. In fact, Jesus taught specific instances when to judge others. For example, in this same chapter 7 in Matthew, verses 15 to 23, Christ warned of the coming of false prophets and how to identify them. This identification would involve judging, criticism, and accusations. His disciples must reject the false prophets. Proper judgments would enable them to identify and avoid the counterfeits. Further, in John 7:24, Jesus accused the Jewish religious leaders of judging him falsely when he healed a man on the Sabbath. He then scolded them and warned them to judge not at a glance by appearances, but fairly and righteously. An apt summary of Matthew 7, 1-5. Therefore, to grasp Jesus' teaching on judging, one must examine the whole text, not just the first two words. They do not declare Christ's whole message on accusing others. To make a part of the truth, in this example, the first two words, to represent the whole truth on judging others, misstates the truth. The first rule of biblical exegesis says, a text without a context is a pretext. One must not only examine the greater context of these verses, the whole Sermon on the Mount, but also the closer context of Matthew 7, 1-5, to to understand Christ's teaching. Verses 1-4 through of Matthew 7 itemize Christ's warnings to those who judge others. I'll read those verses for you. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in your brother's eye, but consider not the beam that is in your own eye? Oh, how I will that say to your brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye. And behold, a beam is in your own eye. The first warning appears in verse number one. Those who accuse others will receive judgment themselves from other people. 
Judging begets judging. Jesus warned his followers that if they accused people, they too would experience accusations and criticism from others. Be prepared for it. If you accuse others, he said, others will accuse you, maybe even those whom you criticize. Second, Jesus warned that those who condemn others will receive condemnation in the same way they attack others. Noted Bible scholar William Mounts defines this way as the extent of criticism, what it includes and what it excludes. Jesus told his disciples that the measure they used in condemning others would serve as the basis, the pattern, of the way others would condemn them. If his followers failed to restrict the issues to condemn, they would endure the brunt of all-inclusive attacks, too. If they nitpicked on trivial matters, they would receive the same kind of treatment. If his followers publicly announced private matters, others would delve into the accuser's private matters and publicize them. Therefore, Jesus warned his disciples that if they judged, they should take heed on the extent of their accusations against others, what to include, exclude, and what to avoid in the manner of judgments. Third, Jesus warned his followers in the kingdom to examine themselves for hypocrisy. His specific example contrasted a moat in the eye of the accused and a beam in the eye of the accuser. A moat was a small sliver of wood, a speck, a small particle, according to the Amplified Bible. In contrast, the beam consisted of a large beam of wood, according to Bible scholars Lau and Nida. Jesus used this sharp disparity between the accuser and the accused to warn about hypocrisy, the presence of a greater problem in the accuser than in the accused, which would hamper removal of the small issue by the accuser from the life of the accused. Before condemning by judgment, Jesus warned his disciples in verse number 5 to first clear their lives of offenses before attempting to criticize another person. Why did Jesus declare this message? What did Jesus want to accomplish with this message for his followers? First, Jesus did not teach it because his followers and others practiced proper judgment of others. Obviously, they did not, and neither did the greater Jewish community. In fact, contrary to common practice, the Old Testament provided ample evidence of God commanding his people to exercise justice in their dealings with others, even including aliens. The inherent sinful nature of mankind produced evil judgments, which Jesus wanted to correct. He taught his followers not to prevent judgment, but to practice proper judgment, overcoming their natural tendencies. If Jesus did not want his disciples to judge others, he would not have included this message on how to judge. He would have simply said, judge not. 
Second, at this time, according to Smith's Dictionary Timeline, Jesus previously cleansed the temple in Jerusalem, the first time and experienced severe condemnation for it from the religious leaders. He knew that he would endure further unjust criticism in his ministry. Jesus wanted his followers to identify and reject the false judgments against him in his future ministry. He desired faithfulness and trust in him against the lies of the religious leaders of their day and their false accusations. Third, Jesus knew that his disciples would encounter unjust criticism and accusations. Further, Christ knew they would face difficulties in the growth of the church. Therefore, they needed direction on how to overcome these judgments. Since God wanted his disciples to exercise proper judgment, he taught them the practical warnings against false judgments. He specifically itemized three admonitions. Number one, if you judge others, you will receive judgment too. Number two, if you judge others, others will judge you in the same manner that you judge them. Before you judge another, examine yourself for hypocrisy. God knew that his followers would need to make proper judgments in their lives. He wanted them to know how to avoid false condemnations and to judge in truth and righteousness. What correlation does this message have for you and me? Although spoken centuries ago, Christ's admonitions on judging others still applies today. Everything true then is true today. We face a barrage of temptations which call for righteous judgments. The world parades evil as good, declares wrong as right, and asserts error as truth. Further, some leaders in the Christian community try to lead people astray after heresy. Both the world and its culture, as well as false prophets in the Christian community, attempt to silence the warnings and accusations of Jesus' followers against these evils. They reject all biblical truth and value judgments. Their mantra? Jesus said not to judge. Today, as through the centuries, Christ's followers need to understand his commands for judgment. He did not command against its practice. He did, however, outline how to judge in truth and righteousness. Followers of Jesus must learn and adopt his warnings and directions for proper judgments. We must not allow the world and false leaders to intimidate us and silence our demands for truth. We must reprove evil, posing it to the light of God's word. What implications do these commands identify for you and me? Our natural condition, due to the weakness of our sinful human natures, prevents us from judging according to the demands of Christ. Therefore, we need divine intervention in our lives to enable us to do it. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit who would indwell his followers and who would guide them into the truth and enable them to obey him. Therefore, what implications do these truths have for us, for you and for me? If you are a believer, the teaching of Christ on judging provides insight 
for those of us who trust Christ as Lord and Savior, on how the Holy Spirit can use Christ's commands in our lives. Christ's followers show their life-changing transformations by obedience to God. This text from Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5, outlines Christ's demands for life and practice. Like many Christians, you may live your life in accordance with God's commands in judging others. I encourage you, therefore, to continue in obedience to God, and He will guide you and bless you for your obedience and sacrifice. However, if you claim allegiance to Christ and profess that you trust Him as Lord and Savior, but criticize others unjustly or without self-examination, I call you to repentance. You cannot claim what you do not live in daily life. A true follower of Christ will practice judgments of others as Jesus commanded. Confess your disobedience and selfishness. Repent of it and turn to Christ to experience His forgiveness. Begin to show correct judgments, criticism, and accusations of others as Jesus demands. Perhaps you make no claim to salvation at all. You've never trusted Christ. You show no interest in God or His Son Jesus. You live your life to satisfy your selfish desires. You may even doubt the existence of God. Further, if He exists, you believe that He has no interest in you or your life. The Holy Spirit can use this example from Christ's teaching on judging others to unbelievers like you because it proves that the grace and mercy of God in Christ, as revealed in the Gospel, extends to the worst of sinners like you and me. When God created Adam and Eve, He planned for them to honor and glorify Him and to fill the earth with their progeny, who would also honor and glorify God. Thus they became the head of all humanity who would originate from them. But Adam and Eve sinned when they disobeyed God and ate the fruit of the tree in the garden in Eden that God forbade them to eat. Sin now defiled their natures. They looked at each other in different ways. Guilt replaced freedom. They knew that they disobeyed God and began to experience the consequences of their sins. Their sins separated them from fellowship with God, creating a chasm between God and them, and they fled from His presence. Since all mankind issues from Adam and Eve as heads of humanity, Adam's sin assigns to all humanity too including you and me. From conception, we possess a sinful nature and become enslaved to our sin, which separates us from God with no desire for Him. We have no longing to believe God, let alone worship Him. Sin engulfs us into bondage to it and permeates our whole beings. In addition, our sin makes us helpless to remedy our condition. Because of your sin helplessness and lack of desire for God, you need divine intervention in your life to redeem you from your sin and bondage to evil and to reconcile you to God. Hear God's word to you today. The gospel tells us that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth 
born of a young virgin girl, to secure redemption for sinners and to reconcile them back to God. During his life on earth, Jesus obeyed every command and demand of God, living a perfect and sinless life. Though tempted in all ways like us, he resisted every time. Because of his sinless life, he could provide the perfect, complete sacrifice to God on behalf of the sins of others as their substitute. He lived a life that neither you nor I could live. Major Ian Thomas said it this way, The life that he lived qualified him for the death that he died. When Christ shed his blood on the cross and died there, he offered himself to God as a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of sinners like you and me. He paid the penalty to God in full that people like us deserve to pay because of our sin. He died the death that we should have died. Our sin separates us from God and requires a suitable sacrifice to God to atone for them and to reconcile us back to himself. The sacrifice of Christ fulfills that obligation on behalf of people like you and me. God accepted Christ's sacrifice in atonement for the sins of sinners like you and me. Jesus commanded all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel, which calls for us to believe the virgin birth of Christ, the sinless life of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross where he sacrificed his blood for sinners like you and me, and his resurrection to new life, victorious over sin and death, destroying the devil and all his evil works. Jesus promised to accept everyone who comes to him in faith, turning from their sin, self-reliance, and rebellion against God, to trust his sacrifice to God on their behalf. God promised to pardon and forgive all who come to him by faith in Christ, God's appointed substitutionary sacrifice to God for them. And that includes you and me. Further, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to indwell those who come to him in faith. The indwelling Holy Spirit enables Christ's followers to fulfill his commands. As a young boy, I called upon Christ to be my Savior. I have experienced Christ's transforming power by the Holy Spirit in my life and attest to its reality. I ask the Holy Spirit to come to you today to give to you the new birth that will regenerate you, giving you new life from above. I pray he will come to you today to give you the faith to turn from your sin, self-reliance, and rebellion against God, and to give you the faith to trust Christ's provision for you in his life, death, and resurrection, as fulfilled for you and that will reconcile you to God, and to come to you today and to indwell you as Christ promised so that he will begin to form Christ's life in you. I pray that this will become true of you today.